to the Sports Plus show with, again, this week, just Baker and Joe. Daryl is uh, still in San Diego visiting his children. So we have a uh, very special guest here. He's a reporter with Fox 61 in Hartford. He's been a play-by-play man for a number of different sports for the last dozen years or so. And he's the host of Award Tour, the podcast, which is, if you like this show, you'll like his show. It's a, let's say, a more organized and put-together version. Uncle Asanye, <laughs> thanks for joining us. You're not supposed to flatter me in the first minute and change, man, but thanks for having me. <laughs> have to have to disarm you a little bit. So <laughs> we were we were kind of, you know, as we always do, we talk about our topics in the five minutes before the show starts. And uh, everything I want to bring to the table is is non-sports related. So I think uh, let me give you each a chance to to bring up one thing and then we can go down that that long, dark road that I'm going to take us for a little bit. So uh, <laughs> Matt, why don't you go first? Oh, geez. Well, I mean, I would, this is, this. it's sport related, but also, uh, you know, real life right now. And I think we're recording the podcast. Um, this is Friday morning. If you're listening on the radio, WXOJ, it's Saturday morning. But as of yesterday, Thursday afternoon, um, you know, we've been talking about the Trevor Bauer and kind of following that a little bit um, as things have been happening. But there was some news yesterday with the Trevor Bauer with basically um, the female um, not being awarded her permanent restraining oh, order. Restraining order. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she was, she, she was, do you call it awarded a, a temporary or she was given the temporary Grant, granted, order. I think would granted. be, it doesn't seem like a, like an award. Yeah. yeah that's what I mean. Yeah. I didn't want to, yeah, that was probably yeah. poor terminology on my part, but she was granted the temporary restraining order um, on Trevor Bauer, but denied the permanent one. And, you know, I think Trevor Bauer, he's a sick dude. Um, you know, I, everybody's got their own cup of tea, I guess. And, and clearly that it's not mine, but um you know, this is an unfortunate situation. And now I think baseball has a, is it has a, an important decision to make because the legal process is playing out, but I wonder how much longer can baseball keep him in this, uh, can't play, you know, half suspended kind of world that he's in right now. I mean, unfortunately, and, 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 again, very serious allegations, but the Dodgers too are in a tough spot because things that I've been reading are the Dodgers really don't want him playing right now. However, that's ironic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, understandably, but then at the same time, they're on the hook for a lot of money. So from a business, from the, and it's unfortunate that this gets brought up into it, but they're going to be paying this guy a lot of money to do nothing. Yeah. I mean, what's the best course of action? If you're the Dodgers, you, you can, you, I, and that's where I think maybe 20 years down the road, we would see a team cut ties with a player regardless of, of the money invested, but we do, we're still here. I mean, again, we keep bringing up Chauncey Billups, but you know, even with his, all the questions, he was the first, first person in line for that job. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's, I think baseball was probably hoping for more legal action because then that would have made their decision easier. But 
the fact that the permanent restraining order has been denied, um, you know, it kind of, from a, a, a legal standpoint, I don't, you know, I think things are still playing out, but that, that was important news that uh, came up yesterday. Well, and he still, he still faces all the criminal charges too. So, that, I mean, but the problem is with that, the justice on that's going to be long delayed. So, yeah. So, Uncle, how many times do you think MLB can sort of punt this down the road with these, these, you know, these intermediate little keep them on this list? Because they just they just had to renew it yesterday, I guess. Is it every ten days or so? Mm-hmm. How how long can they keep doing this? I don't think they have as long as they think they do, and there are two reasons for that. The first is that labor negotiations are going to be happening in the off season, so already you can figure that this sort of conversation will factor into that. I think the second piece of that is that baseball for a very long time has been, I don't want to say resistant to sort of societal change, but in the past decade and change, it hasn't always been on the the cutting edge. And so when it comes to a situation like Trevor Bowers, I I don't think they have that long. I would not be surprised. I I know you said that in, uh, you think in the next 20 years, MLB might cut ties. Rather, MLB teams would cut ties with players that get into trouble like this. The the Dodgers might actually end up eating that money as soon as this offseason. Because I don't I think it's I think it's even bigger than the price tag. I think you also look at the fact that they didn't really need him to begin with. He would have been an embarrassment of riches. And even though their team is still depleted pitching wise. They still don't really miss him, so I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think the people. I don't think he has as long as people think he does. Well, and you know the obviously the public sentiment starting to catch up with him a little bit, but again, you know, being the Dodgers, they can they can eat that money. They can make that mistake. So I, I, I would hope, <laughs> I you know I said twenty years. I, I hope it becomes a standard a lot sooner. But it, you know. Things move slowly if they ever move at all. So. You also have to think too. I mean, how how would he be welcomed into that locker room and or to the clubhouse? You know, I would hope and, and think he he probably. I don't know if he had a lot of friends to begin with. Like he he seems. I, I kind of read a little bit about him yesterday. He kind of seems like he he does his own thing. Um, but now that all of these allegations and and stories are kind of out in the public, and there appears to be a little bit of um, history with him doing the same thing when he was down in Cleveland a few years ago. I don't know if he'd be, be really welcomed into that clubhouse. Um, you know, I would hope that some of those guys in there, the leaders would say, look, we're going to do this without you. We don't even want you in here. Well, and it's, it's also kind of like, it's a difficult public conversation to have because the things that he did are just so uh, just barbaric almost. And it's, and the, 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 oddity of the judge's decision was that he said that she wasn't subject to anything that she didn't consent to, even though at times during these attacks, she was unconscious. And I'm not sure how that, how that jives. And I, I, I guess one judge can make that bad decision. I would have more faith in a, a jury in a criminal trial 
that they would be a little more discerning than that and, you know, hold them somewhat responsible. And then at that point, the conversation about what the Dodgers or MLB does becomes irrelevant because he's Mm going to be in jail and he should be in jail for quite some time, but probably will not be as we see these things. I mean, even Bill Cosby's out. So, so, uh, Unquad, do you have a uh, sports topic before we, uh, Start talking about Afghanistan. Whoa. Um, (laughs) I think what I would say is we are finally starting to understand what it means to mentally be a professional athlete. And I think that we don't spend a lot of time talking about it in the proper light. And the reason I say that is primarily because if we were to just look at the way that sports have been constructed, even as far as long as I've been alive, which hasn't been very long, it was barely, it's very much based on the fact that athletes are superhuman. Things don't bother them. Uh They don't really deal with things. And when they do deal with things, it's shut up. You're not superhuman anymore. What are you doing? I mean, to watch somebody like Simone Biles say, you know what? I ain't got it. And even if you don't understand I can't do this for Naomi Osaka ahead of time to be like, listen, I can't do this. And then to watch the same people who prop them up, who put them in headlines, like my, my industry, I'm very, 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 very new. Um, I hope it doesn't end after I say these things, but I will say that I think (laughs) at times we don't do the best job in terms of telling the full story. Mm. I think we, I think we have a storyline that we expect our readers to subscribe to. And I think that's a disservice to the people that we cover. That uncle, that that's awesome. And Joe, I know you wanted to get into Afghanistan. No, 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 no go ahead. But just... Along those lines that that's great. And, and I love that perspective you have just last night. I was watching on Netflix um, untold series malice in the palace. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, oh great doctor. I but, can't wait. Oh, oh my good. I, I remember I was a freshman in college, not to date myself. Um, sorry, Joe. <laughs> sorry, but surrounded by youngsters <laughs> this week. The old, the old just, man Daryl isn't here today, so you're our resident uh, senior citizen. This is my, my second. This is my second week trying to bookend, trying to be bookended by two millennials. It's a little rough. <laughs> Uh, make me feel older than I really am, which is old enough. So Good Lord. I, I remember, I, I remember 2004, I'm a freshman in college. I, I do Friday night. I'm at a, a, a party and we're watching before like the party actually starts, you know, the whole pregame is going on and, and we're watching this basketball game. And then Ron Artest jumps into the crowd. And, and I, I remember that. And so I'm watching this documentary and it's incredible how even now, at least I, I was so unaware of Ron Artest, Jermaine O'Neal, and um, Steven uh, Jackson. Jackson, the their background perspective leading up to that. And, and even so in, in 2003, the Indiana Pacers, they, they lose that series to the eventual champion Detroit Pistons. And Ron Artest is saying like, he, he went into that season, the 2004 Malice in the Palace season, knowing like, he's like, I need 
space right now. Even though the season's just starting, I need some space. My head is not right. And the organization was like, dude, season just started. Like, let's go. And, and Ron Artest is talking about his anxiety, his depression, and how it's just, dude, you got a game to play. Let's go. Let's go. Let's play. And he's even talking about when he's laying on the table and, and, and you know, that iconic picture of him with yeah. his hands back and, and it was it was told in a, a disrespectful way, Ron Artest. And, and, and he's like, dude, I, I was doing my take five breaths. He's like, yeah. I was trying to count to five to think about what do I do next here? I'm on my way to five and I've got a cup of water being thrown in my face. I don't think it was water. Um, but uncle, that, like, that's a great perspective of how the, the narrative or the story that's told is sometimes what we want it to be. And, and it's not always that full truth. And it's unfortunate how often the athletes perspective, that is, it's not spin. It's true. It's their life, but we don't take that into account when we talk about it. And then even thinking about that, even just going about, you know, just, just starting this, this new position I'm in, it starts to make sense to me now why they have handlers, why they have PR people. Cause in yeah. the wrong hands, the story's not the story anymore. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it kind of hurts because I feel like in my position, I want to be able to tell stories, tell them accurately. And also just, develop a human relationship because because we're all humans at the end of the day and for me to go out of my way to like i'm not going i am not going to win an award off of somebody's pain and suffering off of a bad moment if it happens in a public forum okay. where i can't really do anything about it I, I i gotta report what what's happening but to make a mount to make a mountain out of a molehill for something small i i i personally think that's just that's unbecoming. That's unbecoming. And I hope we'll, we, we go away from that. Well, the, the story at the time was, and I was, you know, again, d dating myself here, but I was in my thirties. Um, the story at the time was how dare these, these barbaric athletes go into the stands. And then when you see, you know, everything that led up to that moment, and again, like Matt, like you said, our test was trying to do his self-care moment of taking himself out of the situation. And he even said, I knew he said, I didn't even worry about the fight on the court because I knew I saw Jermaine standing right next to me. I knew he would, he would protect me if anyone, if anything. but at that point the fight was breaking up and it's, mm -hmm. you know, we, you, we've all forgot that it was because of this one a hole in the stands who started it. If he didn't throw that cup, none of this ever would have happened. And you look at everything that happened after that, you know, the fans coming out to the court and the, even the, the stuff they were throwing at the players on the way out, just, you know, when you look at it in retrospect, all the blame goes to the fans where it belongs. But when it happened, it was 80, 20, the blame being placed on the, on the players. And, and it, it was, was intentional too. Yeah, like that's the that's the sad part about it for me. I mean, correct me, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. But everything I've read about coverage of it literally said you don't blame the customer. Right. Yes. Well, and and that's that's was part of this this story on this documentary that I was watching last night. Is and even David Stern come comes out uh, within 48 hours suspending our test 
for the rest of the season. Jermaine O'Neal, 25 games. Stephen Jackson, 30 games. And and granted, I, I think, you know, it was a awful situation. But Jermaine O'Neal, I remember hit like his line that stuck to me was like, I'm the, everything I did was defending myself or my teammates. I was protecting myself and my teammates. What am I supposed to do? And and David Stern is, I can't, I can't uh, attack the customers. You know, I, I, and then all of the story that the headlines for that is, you know, thug this and thug behavior that, and it's, are, wait a minute, you're, you're referring to the fans. The fans yeah. were the thugs in that situation. You know, Reggie Miller is talking about how he's like, it was, it was a scrum on the basketball court that, that happens, especially early two thousands that would happen, you know, once a week, it doesn't get covered because it wasn't a big deal. Um, but the thugs in the stands are what made that situation what it was. Um, so, so that my, wouldn't have been a narrative that the NBA wanted. So my question for both of you is if that happens to the Celtics in wherever, in New York, and the three players that go up into the stands are Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and Danny Ainge, do we get the same, do we get the same conversation? Do we get the same tone of, of the conversation? <laughs> It barely makes the head. It barely makes the headlines. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Go ahead. Because, go because the, the, it's interesting that you chose the players that you did, because I think at that time, the NBA was still very much rough and tumble. Fights happen on the court all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You yeah. could expect Larry Bird to actually turn around and walk up into the stands on you. <laughs> but I am not surprised. I would not be surprised if. That would be it. Would be it would be a funny bar stool side piece, um, but yeah, that would be it. Maybe the the whoever the Ron Artest was in that situation might get a might get a short suspension, but we sure wouldn't see. I mean, that was. I mean, the irony the is that, that would, it would be Larry Bird. That'd be my personal opinion. <laughs> well, and the, I mean that you, the other thing that I didn't so much realize in the moment until I saw the documentary was how they were sort of the prohibitive favorite that year. I mean, they were clearly the best team in the East. They were going to go to the finals and that, I mean, you take three of their top four players out of the lineup for, for, a, you know, a quarter, to almost season. half the season mm -hmm. at that point. Cause I think they were 17 games or so in and that, you know, just killed their season. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. Seen a, a team lose their championship chances to suspensions like that in any sport. Yeah, I, I actually I, I didn't even have that on our topic to, to to mention, but I just thought that tied in greatly to what you were saying, Uncle, you know, and how the story with Simone Biles and, and Naomi Osaka and how sort of the, the media or the coverage narrates the story. Well, and, and, and how we are responsible as media members for our conduct and its effect on these athletes. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And, and my suggestion was that if Naomi Osaka doesn't want to answer post-match press conferences, but she's going to get suspended or fined if she doesn't, then the, the members of the media should just agree to not ask her any questions. And when they bring her out, they say, does anyone have any questions? And everyone says no. And she gets to walk away. And, you know, we talk, I brought that up as a, a Pollyanna 
solution because there's always going to be that one reporter in the room and that one reporter was in the room at the French Open and started hammering her on the on her justification how do you do how do you do this thing when you say you don't want to talk to the talk to the press after matches but you'll go you'll do this interview and you'll do this vanity fair thing and and then another another reporter asked her about uh, her father's from Haiti and another reporter asked her about the earthquake a few questions after that and she broke down and had to leave the press conference and you know came back out and finished it but again we're we're seeing this openness in public about because you know like uncle said you don't in in the quote old days my days you didn't admit to any weakness because it would be exploited and now the the younger generation of athletes is much more comfortable and i think it will hopefully lead to a more open public conversation about our own mental health issues because it's a super common thing and if you're not a little bit knocked off center mentally given what's been going on the last year and a half then there's probably something wrong with you in a different direction i mean it's I don't know how anyone and it's funny I was just reading a, an article the other day about how uh, we we need to focus our mental illness treatment more on circumstantial issues it, that it, that anxiety and depression reactions that are in reaction to what's happening in our lives and in society in general and you know there are chronic chemical imbalance situations, but there are also a lot of circumstantial anxiety and depression situations. And we seem to treat them the same, both medically and societally. And I think it would be helpful. And I think if anything, the pandemic might accelerate that a little bit because so many people are going through it right now. And so many people who are ordinarily okay and functional and healthy are now seeing their productivity decline and their energy decline. And I mean, we've been going through this for a year and a half guys. And, you know, I know we're all just sort of starting to try and get back to our lives, but even that seems about to be interrupted. So you wanted to bring up uh, jeopardy. Well, well, okay. I was actually going to, going to talk about the school situation in Mississippi, but yeah. So the jeopardy, the Jeopardy situation actually, again, sort of follows along with our theme of um, men behaving badly. But so they went through this long um, trial period with different guest hosts. And, you know, Aaron Rodgers was on for a couple of weeks, did a fantastic job. Joe Buck hosted for a week. And, um, you know, they had Robin Roberts, you know, George Stephanopoulos, and maybe a dozen or so. A lot of a lot of people from the media, a lot of people from TV, and um, in the end, one, the second, the first host was Ken Jennings, who was the the greatest Jeopardy champion of all time. He seemed to be the favorite to be a host. He had been working as a producer on the show, was intimately familiar with the show. Alex Trebek loved him; they were good friends. He seemed like the natural successor, but. He had had some um, problematic tweets uh, from years ago that kind of resurfaced, and it kind of was a bad look. The the most objectionable one was he said he didn't know how anyone could ever be. Or he 
there's nothing sadder than a attractive person in a wheelchair. So some just sort of like insensitive to disabled people and just like some just some bad bad jokes. No, nothing really super terrible, I thought, but enough to I think make it enough of an issue that they wanted to have a more open supposedly was going to be an open competition for the job. And so the second host was this guy named Mike Richards, who for about six months had been an executive producer on the show and had a game show background, had done The Price is Right and seemed to have this um, aspiring game show host dream, had hosted a couple of smaller shows, but it mostly worked as a producer. And so he guest hosted, was pretty unremarkable, um, kind of bland. And then they went through for a couple months, the succession of fantastic guest hosts. And then in the end, he just gave himself the job. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I want to, I just got 10 minutes ago, a WWLP alert that Mike Richards is going to step down. Oh, beautiful. Oh, so he knew you were going to talk about him. Be beautiful, beautiful. I can, could not be happier. And I know there are Jeopardy fans across the world who are celebrating this because th he was the absolute last person you wanted after just watching the competition. And then to hear about these. So, so what has then resurfaced about him is that when he was a producer on The Price is Right, they fired uh, the spokesperson spokeswomen, the models who, you know, brought out the sh showcase, the prizes um, fired some of them because they were got pregnant, made just awful comments about, you know, what they should be doing with their bodies. And then <laughs> it came out. There's actually an article in the ringer just uh, yesterday or the day before that somehow this podcast surfaced that he did in 2013 and 2014, where he just said, horrible thing after horrible thing. And, and again, thrilled, thrilled that, that we get that news. Uncle, are you a Jeopardy fan? I miss Alex Trebek. Well, I don't know. Matt just heard this while you were away. Um, the, Mike Richards has decided to not, to, to remove himself from consideration, I guess. Oh, glory be. I know that was my reaction <laughs> as well. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, glory be. So who's your who's your first choice for uh, for permanent replacement? Because I'm petty, I want to say Aaron Rodgers, but um, <laughs> honestly, I didn't watch enough of the guest hosts to honestly be abreast of it all. But it feels really weird that Ken Jennings isn't the guy. Well, that's what we were just mentioning that I think it was these this this tweet about um, nothing sadder than a attractive person in a wheelchair. I think that enough was enough to make them sort of wrinkle their noses at. But, yeah, I think he would have been and a fantastic. They hired player. Mike and then they hired Mike Richards. Instead. Exactly. Well, but Mike Richards hired hired himself. Really. Yeah, so, that's actually yeah. better. Yeah. Hashtag yeah. executive producer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't I, I Lavar Burton man like we were talking before we started the show though I think it that's more of a nostalgic I'm not a huge Jeopardy fan but just the nostalgia in my childhood of reading Rainbow I'd I'd like to see Lavar Burton that would be cool. Well, I, I think Robin Roberts she was my favorite going in and my favorite after watching them all and I watched that show I have probably watched three quarters of the episodes of Jeopardy 
in the in, since this has been on since 1980, whatever. I mean, oh, wow. it's, that has been part of my nightly routine, or at least my ne- you know now thank, thanks to DVR, it's often a part of my next day routine. But I almost always take 22 minutes out of my day to watch Jeopardy, and I. If I have any brain cells left, that's what it's that's it's from that bit of exercise. And it's still I, I take the test every year and someday, someday, guys, <laughs> and I'm going to try it. I'm going to try and not Cliff Clavin it or if that I don't know. Is that is that too old a reference for you guys? I think so, because I don't know. Cheers? What is. You don't I watch, no never watch Cheers. I've okay, watched yeah, one yeah, episode yeah, of Cheers. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, OK. Right. OK. I, f- for both of you. Do yourselves a, a joyful favor. Find the episode where Cliff is on Jeopardy. The mailman, the obnoxious mailman, yeah. the know-it-all mailman it goes on Jeopardy. And it is maybe the best episode of television ever. And Alex Trebek is wow. so damn funny in it. it. Please, I'll find a link. I'll find a link somewhere for you. I, I might actually need that. I might actually really need that. But, but I mean... It's an American institution. It's been around for so long. And I think to put it in the stewardship of someone who was going to, you know, steer it into the side of the Suez Canal, I think uh, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. the. And here's the thing, too. This was all because of public pressure. And that's what got LeVar Burton his audition. And that's definitely what got Richards booted out of this job. This is a good thing, right? That that uh, public pressure is is actually starting to affect these decisions. It's a mixed. It's pre- public pressure is mixed because it always depends on who your public is. But I will say that I, just from everything that I've read and heard about the way that Jeopardy went down, you mentioned Lamar Lavar Burton. Apparently his audition, like he only got five episodes to guest host, right, right. right? Which basically amounts to a day of tape. It's one day, right. Yeah. So basically not everybody got the same attempt or amount of times to try to actually do this thing. I, are they going to open it back up again? Is my Balik going to just do it all? Like what's, what's the deal? Yeah. And, you know, and everyone had sort of a limited chance except for Ken Jennings who had like six weeks so I think you have to make this decision. You have to sort of project beyond that their their one day or two day audition, and I think you can count on Levar Burton to host a good TV show. He's been doing it for decades, so I think he would have been a really safe choice. Not to mention it's incredibly popular one. So I'm I'm still again as much as I'm on the Robin Roberts train, and you know who else I I hate to I hate to give many credit, but Joe Buck did a really good job. He was a little, <laughs> he, he was a little too enthusiastic in the beginning, but he really and I, man, I have come full circle on Joe Buck. I was on the the Joe Buck hater train, but the guy, he's good at what he does. He's very, I appreciate that he's willing to poke fun at himself. Have Have you guys seen Brockmire? Yeah, yes. he's, he's so. I love that show. Yeah, he he allowed Hank Azaria to write some stuff for him that is just outrageous <laughs> and beautiful and hilarious, and that has sort of brought me again completely around on Joe Buck. And his podcast was pretty good too. I don't know if he's still doing it, but he he did a lot of one on one interviews. It's like Daddy Lessons, right? Yeah, yeah. 
and and there's always that resentment, right, for the guy who's just dad, daddy's boy. You know, well, he got that job because of his dad, who, again, you guys are too young to remember Jack Buck, but man. Oh, no, I, I'm that much of a nerd, but Jack Buck, <laughs> Jack Buck's the guy. Jack Buck's when, the guy. when I used to listen to football on the radio Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons, that's that's the voice I remember from from being a kid is Jack Buck, but yeah. Uh, but again, there, there were a number of better choices than, than Mike, again, Mike Richards choosing himself. I think, <laughs> I think my Bialik wasn't a great choice either. She didn't, she didn't do, I felt, felt like she kind of made the show about herself and I thought the best hosts were just deferential to the game. Aaron Rodgers was great. He would, he would have been a, a good permanent host, but I guess he still has another job, at least for another year. <laughs> I was I was discussing with a couple of my friends. Like I I personally believe that if they wanted to make him, especially after finding out that they only that they do five episodes a day, I could see Aaron Rodgers taking out a chunk of his offseason to just host Jeopardy and it could be on all year or half the year, or he could do the special episodes. Like I think the window should still be open for that, personal opinion course i mean i they could very well have a you know have three people do it have ken jennings aaron Rodgers, and and lavar burton and have them each do a couple of weeks at a time and you know even during the season he could do it on his off day do it on his monday or tuesday nah that would be tough could you could you imagine him like limping in or in a walking <laughs> boot or something like that uh, you know mud still on his face hosting jeopardy i don't know <laughs> well who knows if we're, there's even going to be an nfl season this year there's it, good it, it's 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 be. the nf it's the nfl they will get they will get their money the most interesting thing about the nfl is that i did not expect them to be the first league with a with a vaccine mandate well let me rephrase they're the first league i saw that had um consequences for catching COVID. I'll say that much. I didn't expect, I, I didn't expect them to be the first. I mean, yeah, I guess as far as being the first, because usually the NFL is so reactive rather than being proactive, but I kind of, I mean, I agree with what the NFL did as far as, like you said, not mandates, but almost punishing maybe is too strong of a word, but if you're not vaccinated, it's going to be very challenging uh, for you to get through the season. And not only is your paycheck on the line, but your teammates and fellow, uh, you know, athletes in the league. If, if, if you're unvaccinated and you can't play a game, your team and your opposing team lose a paycheck. And, and I think, that's a lot of pressure to put on him. So uh, Matt and I often disagree on the show, but I'm I'm 100% with you uh, with regards to the NFL. The other thing we saw this week is I think the last two conferences that hadn't yet made this declaration, I think were the Pac-10 and the Big 12. And they both confirmed it this week that if teams can't play because of they don't have enough players because of COVID, they will be forfeiting games this year. Where last wow. year those games just got 
you know, they, they were declared no contest and didn't, didn't go down as a win or loss. I think part of that is because the, the bowls aren't waiving the six win requi- requirement this year. So mm-hmm. teams are trying to get their games in, but so I, and I can't believe we're, we have to ask each other the same question that we did last year, but do we get, do we, how, how disrupted will the college season be? Will we have a, a clean championship, but we have a full schedule of games. You know, but I, I'm curious, and I'm going to, let me, I'll try to look up some numbers while I'm saying this now, but I mean, I know a lot of colleges and universities are mandating the vaccine to get on campus. So it almost seems like why, if I was an athletic director or a, a you know, a commissioner of a conference, it should be the university presidents. If, if I have to be vaccinated to be on campus, it, it should almost be given that I'm vaccinated. How can I not be part of the academic side, but I'm part of the, the athletic side? Well, see we'll, see, we'll see what happens too when the campuses get populated again. And I guess kids are starting to show up back at school and we'll start to see some numbers pretty soon. And the the one that I saw last week was from, uh, Mississippi schools, which have been open for a week. And these are, again, public schools, younger kids who weren't all eligible to be vaccinated and certainly aren't required to be. But out of uh, 400,000 students in the district in the first week, 4,500 of them tested positive and 20,000 were quarantined as a result of contact with infected people. And that was 5% of the student population after a week. And again, that's statewide for Mississippi, which probably has one of the lower vaccination rates among adults. But again, only maybe a sixth or a fifth of those kids are probably eligible to be vaccinated anyway. But again, I just I I can't believe we're going through another year of this, you know, another fall season, another winter season. And it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like there's going to be any caution on the on the part of either the professional leagues or certainly not the NCAA. They're going full bore ahead like they always do. But um, Unqua, thoughts? I, it just I, I don't know whether to be baffled, upset. It's just these are really dangerous decisions, you know. And not only is it dangerous, but you're dealing with kids. I'm not sure if we've real like the 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 numbers you gave me about Mississippi are it's really hitting home. Like these kids can't even protect themselves. Why 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 aren't why I don't know. I'll 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 punt on this one, but just know I'm very <laughs> I'm very disappointed. Well, I mean, your your point, too, that these are kids that can't help themselves. And I mean, whether it's in Mississippi or Massachusetts or California or Connecticut. Or Connecticut. Right. Yeah. And, and it's going to happen there, too, partially because, again, I think right now it's only up to 12 year, or 12 years and older to be eligible to be vaccinated. So like, I think it's 11 and a half or something like that, but around there. So again, you're talking about fifth grade, right? Like fourth, like fifth, sixth grade. So these are 
you know, the overwhelming majority of elementary school kids. And, you know, as our listeners know, Matt's an elementary school teacher and, you know, he's got to go back into that germ cloud himself. And, you know, it's one thing as an adult to go into these situations knowing that you can protect yourself, but set aside whether the adults of Mississippi are failing their children. I think in general, we've all failed the children by, by not having a, a more robust system in place. And we see so many of the serious cases now are among kids because they haven't been vaccinated. And that's where the virus is going to find its most vulnerable hosts. And I, I, yeah, I mean, I, this, this school year could be a very gigantic disaster. Matt, do you expect to be in person all year? Yes, I do. Um, I don't think... I think last year's experiment of the remote learning was kind of a failure. We, I think, like, I, I, and I can only speak for Massachusetts and, and sort of the Department of Ed here in, in Mass. I think they realized that remote learning doesn't work. So, but I think this year is going to be more disruptive than it was last year because basically the state at the state level, they've kind of punted this and said, look, local school committees and, and governing bodies, you're going to decide. The state is not going to send everybody home for to be remote. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot more, like you we're seeing in Mississippi, a lot more students quarantined. I mean, last year we were sending kids home every day. For two symptoms, you're sent home. But we, you know, so I think there's going to be that. And I think kids are going to be quarantined based on seating charts. But, you know, I, I think I, remote learning doesn't, it didn't do anything. Kids didn't learn. Um, the mental health struggled. And so I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. As an educator, the kids need to be in school. So, so what what happens to those kids who test positive? Are you then still having to maintain a, an online learning structure for the kids that aren't there? I mean, because at, at some point, if you know, if we all agree this is going to be a problem and there's going to be significant percentages of students out, then you're going to have to provide that at some point especially if you're the ones telling the students they're not able to come to campus? It's a great question, and I wish, uh, I, wish I knew the answer to that. I, I guess I have uh, a week and a half to figure it out. <laughs> I, but, but, I mean, it, it, it's a fair question. I have that question. Last year, I, I, last year, I was responsible to teach the kids who I had in person as well as posting um, virtual lessons. And I'm a phys ed teacher. So, you know, that had its own challenges. Um, I had to, to post for, I had to, to do everybody in my school building. They needed, if they were virtual, they needed their virtual lessons. If they were in person, obviously I was teaching them in person. Um, this year, I do not know yet what my responsibility will be if classrooms get quarantined or if half of a class gets quarantined. I have no idea uh, what I will be asked to do yet. Like I said, it's, I'm glad I, uh, I'm i starting in a week and a half, and, and maybe I'll find out then. I don't know. 
And I, th- I imagine there'll be a lot of winging it, you know, from from week to week, from situation to situation. And again, in in a case like yours, where you and your wife are working in separate districts and your kids are in a you know in school as well, like just to, to have to go through that. How about in your workplace, Unqua? Do you feel like oh, you may not want to answer this? Uh, do you feel like do you feel safe in your workplace? Weirdly, yes, um, because all of our desks and our workstations are very much spread out. Um, it is very highly recommended to wear masks at work. Obviously hard to do when you're in front of the camera, but <laughs> I would also say that when I have gone out and had to cover stuff, like for instance, the WNBA is requiring uh, all media members to wear masks at all times. Um, a couple of other schools, it's all, sort of like the honor system. I feel like maybe I should be more worried because I was someone who got the vaccine relatively early and was annoyed at having to wear my mask at times (laughs) until I went through and I watched people like really just be full out against it, which sort of indicated to me like, wait, you didn't get the shot and you're not, let me protect, let me protect myself. Let me go ahead and do that. It got to a point where I, if I saw someone without a mask, I also assumed they were unvaccinated, oh, which, wow. which again, you know, that's sort of my projection because there were plenty of times after I was vaccinated that I, I where previously I would have kept it on where I wasn't wearing one. But I've gotten back into the habit now just the last few days. And I, it's funny, I had to take my little batch and put them back out in the Jeep because I wasn't driving around with them all the time because I wasn't using them all the time. But um, yeah, we are definitely in a, you know, we're, we're back into the, the downslope on this thing, but I think we're bullheaded, right? And we saw the same, same problem last year. We thought we were good and then everyone went out and started doing their normal activities again. And then we had this giant spike and it's almost as bad as it was, you know, the worst of, of times last year, which was a little bit earlier in the year last year, if I remember everything right. But the world's become a blur. It's really hard to, to mark time anymore. And that's why, you know, I think we, for at least for me, the more that I can do out, seems like I'm caught in this loop inside my house of, mm. you know, kitchen to living room, to bedroom, to office, to kitchen, to living room, to bedroom, to office. And I was thinking about this yesterday as I was vacuuming and doing laundry, like how many times in my life I've vacuumed and done laundry and it just, it's always going to be there. And I just felt that sort of futility that I think a lot of people are feeling now. And again, we go back to circumstantial depression, you know, and, and reaction to your, to your circumstances. And I think collectively when our, when we're reacting to circumstances that are this trying, it can interfere with our judgment. And so I'm trying to have a little more slack for even people who are refusing the vaccines or school districts that are making these, you know, seemingly short sighted decisions or leagues that want to go back and play a full schedule in the fall. Like I'm trying to have a little extra patience for everyone, knowing that none of us is at our mental best right now. But and let me just say this too, and maybe you know, defend school districts a little bit here. You would, and and I, I watched my my district where not only do I work, my kids go to to school there, and I was watching the school committee meeting where they were making decisions on 
masks and, and things like this. And they all said it like, we're not the doctors, we're not politics, and we don't want this to be a political situation. And, and you have educators, I'm trying to think of myself, I'm an educator, right? Like my, my schooling, my education, everything was education. And it's hard because I, I do think we've made such a mess of this. It's hard to know what's up, what's down, who's right, who's wrong, who's this, who's that. And you now basically what, what we did, and, and I give my school district credit, is I kind of, they just said, look, we, it, this can't be my decision as an educator or a group of, let's, like, what is, what is a school committee typically comprised of? Parents volunteering to make their community's education experience as positive, as safe, as meaningful as possible. Right. None of whom are epidemiologists or exactly. emergency room physicians. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, what what our district decided to do was, look, we, we have between the CDC, between our state department and our local health department, they are going to make recommendations and we are going to take their recommendation and, and adapt it as ours. And, and, if, and if masks are strongly recommended, if masks are mandated by them, that's what we're going to do. And so I, I, the re, I guess the reason I'm saying that is because it's tough. I think it's easy to sit there and say these Mississippi numbers are, are unnerving and let's blame it on these school districts. But again, like, from an educator's point, kids need to be in school. They're not, they don't, they're not going to learn if they're home. I don't think it's very healthy for kids to be sitting in front of a computer all day. You know, so I, I think it's <laughs> right. But then you have to balance that with, it's not healthy for them to all get COVID either. And, you know, fair, if we're talking about, fair, we're but, also, we're talking about a, 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 a condition too, that we don't know. We're still sort of, afraid of the long-term effects of this. And if we, you know, we may end up with an entire generation of children of, of, of who will then become adults with heart conditions or lung conditions. And I, you know, again, I, I don't think the human race is long for this world anyway. So, you know, if it burns out in a few more generations, that's probably, that's probably about the pace we're on anyway. Yeah, no, no. And, and it's fair. And, and, but that's where I think, as an edu education system or, or, you know, a school committee, I, I, you know, you're going to, I would like to think that you're just going to lean on the recommendation of the health right, right. scientists and, and really not the politicians because it, it's become political. And, and I think politicizing it, COVID being politicized, at the very beginning, I think was a very detrimental to well, it's funny eating it, you know? Well, and that's what it's become too now, right? And we've talked about this before, how it's the, it's the right that is pushing back against, against again, common sense and, and scientific knowledge. But I want to give you credit, Matt, you did a really good job uh, keeping the ball on the ground in the third quarter and making the game shorter uh, to help avoid our next, our final topic. Um, <laughs> But um, to go back to sort of the right being somewhere where I would not have expected, it appears 
I always thought the revolution was going to be a bunch of us lefties throwing rocks and, you know, striking and, and those sort of movements. But it appears that our our grand insurrection is going to be led by a former Navy SEAL and not just any former Navy SEAL, the former Navy SEAL who, again, is a self-claim that he was the one who shot Osama bin Laden and had been very vocally critical of Joe Biden in the last few days, rightfully so. Afghanistan is a giant mess, and it it was a mess before we were even fully out of there, which is pretty terrifying how quickly the Taliban took back over. But so this guy, Robert, Robert J. O'Neill is his name. Um, his Twitter handle is Mick So that should give you an idea of where he's um, where his um, demeanor is. But he's uh, he said, tweeted, uh, did you see how the Taliban rolled through the streets and took back their country? I actually spelled it county, but it's country. I know a few dudes who would do the same with me right now. So he's basically saying he's got a bunch of buddies that are ready to not only take up arms, I guess, against the government, try and overthrow the government, but using the Taliban as a model for behavior is something that I've seen so many, you know, right-wing commentators do in the last few days. Bizarre. One of the most bizarre political turns I can remember in my life is this, all of a sudden, the right-wing, who were the anti-terrorist people, all of a sudden, they're all looking at the Taliban and publicly saying, hey, well, let's look what the Taliban's doing. See, it looks pretty good, huh? And that is more terrifying. And we, we were talking about this last year leading up to the election. Um, the, the the fear of some sort of giant conflict between the right and the left in this country or, you know, the right and anyone else now. I, I'm as nervous as I was after seeing what's happened the last few days. I'm as nervous as I was last October. I'm there with you. Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't have Twitter, I, so I didn't didn't see the tweet, but you know, you're reading it. It's, it's unnerving. It is. Um, I think, you know, I don't, I don't, we only have a few minutes left. Um, so I don't know how deep into the weeds we can, we can get here, but you know, I think we are so, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. It's unnerving. It is. I, I think media plays a big role in, in similar to, to how Unqua was explaining and talking about how, you know, athlete sports stories can kind of be controlled by the people reporting them. I do think stories, uh, political stories are controlled by the people telling them. And that when and i've stopped watching the news for this kind of reason is when when you kind of have an opinion and you're watching over and over again somebody telling you how right you are and how wrong the other side is i think that's dangerous because not only does it make me it, it proves my opinion but it makes me think that my neighbor is evil or my neighbor is, is out to get me. And, and look, I mean, 
the tweet speaks for itself. So, yeah. you know, the, the, that tweet speaks for itself, but it, it, it is very unnerving to, and, and we've said this before, the fact that I'm bringing up kids in this world who uh, are going to have to deal with the BS that us adults are creating, I guess. Well, I, I don't know. I, yeah, go ahead, John. Well, no, and that's, I mean, I think that you know, media literacy is very important and it's probably, hopefully will be taught, you know, in elementary or middle schools soon, because it, even as, as, and I've said this before, maybe not on this show, but even as a professionally trained journalist, I, I, it takes me five times longer to verify that the contents of an article are true than mm -hmm. it does to read the article. And I know everyone's not making that effort or even has the, the tools to, to, to determine these things or is even asking themselves those questions. So I think you're right in that we just keep listening to our echo chambers and, and it's going to, it's, that's what's making, a, making the two sides go further apart. And we, you know, again, not to get too melancholy about it, but you know, it's, um, it's, it's a very steep, slippery road down that we're on right now. So um, again, sort of grateful that we ran out the clock a little bit and didn't talk about that for, <laughs> for an hour and a half, but uh, we do want to apologize because the speed to which the world is moving right now, we did tape this on Friday morning. So we apologize for uh, whatever catastrophe happened in the 24 hours between recording <laughs> and airtime. We're sorry we didn't get to comment on it. I uh, would like to give a very special thanks to our guest, Unqua Asanye, who, um, graciously took time has just moved into a new place and is uh sort of dealing with a million different things but took some time out of his day to join us make sure you check out his podcast it's called award tour of the podcast and again it's a um more intelligent more uh well-organized version of what we do here. <laughs> and you and if you have an app you can download the fox 61 app or if you live in Connecticut, I'm on channel 61 talking sports various parts throughout at various times throughout the week. That's awesome. Well, yeah, Uncle, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, thanks for listening to the Sports Plus show with uh, Baker and Joe. And, and Daryl, we got Daryl back next week. So we'll yeah. be, a, be a complete family again. Daryl, we hope you're listening, but we're pretty sure you're not. <laughs> and the one thing we did not get to cover, and we got 20 seconds left, so we won't, but the Jets lost two defensive rotation guys. One starter was going to be their best pass rusher. So Jets Jets being the Jets, and uh, the season's already over, as we expected. Yankees sweeping the socks. I'm happy. I'm happy. Go Giants. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thanks.